0: I'll start off by thinking about my mother, who for most of her life said she would never get old. And she was defiant in that. And there is a part of me that is very much like my mother. And as I sit here, I'm going to say to you, I will never get old. And I know that is absolute BS.
1: Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. We call it Llama. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, this is the final episode from TED-MED, the annual conference focusing on health and medicine. During this series, we've looked a lot at the scientific developments in the field of AI, precision, medicine, as they apply to human longevity. And I sometimes think we need to be careful not to lose track of the human in all of this. We're all people. We all have different lives and aspirations and attitudes Towards Growing Old, for this final episode from TEDMED, my guest is a fellow journalist. Stephen Petro is an award-winning journalist, author, best known for his essays in The Washington Post and New York Times, often focusing on health and Aging, Stephen. Welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Peter, I'm pleased to be here,
0: and I hope I will live longer as a result of sitting down with you today. Well, that's and putting a lot of pressure
1: on me. That I don't know that I, I, I wanted can to just you know make it come up here. with the goods, but uh, I'd, I'd like to achieve that for you. I mentioned that there is a danger, I think, sometimes of just losing track of that word "human" when we talk about human longevity, or we consider the quite mind-boggling science that's going into the research that could help us live much longer do you feel the same that we still need to remember the the person inside i mean absolutely
0: and the kind of writing that i that i've been doing the last several years is really telling those human stories and and many of them have been about my parents who were exactly human in um all their wonderful and sometimes challenging qualities but they they each had serious uh, debilitating and eventually life-threatening diseases and I saw just so many lessons in, in how they were living that, um, that I was really honored to be able to tell to, to readers and to explain to readers, as well as the vantage point being a son and um, having reversed roles um, with my parents. And I was, I was the kid, and my parents you know, took care of me. And then here in their late 70s and early 80s, we had to shift and... Um, and that was, that was profound in a, very, um, in a very human way for all of us. And I have to say, my mother, well, my mother and my father understandably balked. <laughs> and,
1: uh, um, so and this I, is a familiar journey to so many
0: people, isn't it? It is. And my siblings and I were very aware of um, this tension and we had we talked with a therapist we talked with um other professionals to try to do the best job that we could in not um disempowering them in any way or as or as little as possible but it's very interesting peter after my father died he was a journalist also i found in his papers really his his private thoughts about all of this and um and I learned, and I actually only learned this two weeks ago when I was going through them, we did not succeed. He was, um, I don't know that I would say he was humiliated, but he was very angry. I think he was angry at his condition, and part of it was taken out on us, but he was was angry. And um, that was sobering, because it wasn't like we had been unmindful about going into
1: this. Sobering, and I wonder if, based on, your knowledge of your father and how well you knew him. Was it that surprising? Hmm. Part of the reason, or part of how I
0: found this out, is I've started to write an essay about my father's death, and it started off by my saying, I didn't really know my father very well. He was a generation of men uh, who did not talk very much about his, his emotions, and he was the consummate journalist Uh, he knew how to interview you and he knew how to protect himself. And so um, I I felt really that it had been a lifelong challenge to actually get to know him. Uh, That being said, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. Although I was surprised to actually find it so, so clearly, so clearly written out. And he knew that I'm the family archive keeper. So at some point he knew that I was going to come across this and, and, and I think do something with it. So I hope that, um, you know, in his memory, I will do, I will do right by those, those tensions. Yeah. Can I ask what
1: age he was when he died? He was just shy of 88. So he lived, uh, as people say, he lived to be a good age. He did. And, um, I think what was especially challenging
0: for him was he had a neurological condition that had no names, so that had no specific diagnosis, but over the over the last fifteen years of his life he lost control of his muscularity which which was both a mobility issue but also an articulation issue and so he had increasing trouble talking and that was I mean, that was just so challenging for him and a, as I would completely relate to as as well so it was a very it was a long slow slide that ended with a
1: fall and what if you in dealing with your parents both of your parents what have you learned about yourself as you grow old and inevitably we all look ahead and there will be a time where we will get to that stage and face the same sort of challenges has dealing with your parents and perhaps observing others helped you with your life and how you get older well i'll start off um
0: by thinking about my mother who for most of her life said she would never get old and she was defiant in that. And there is a part of me that is very much like my mother. And you know, as I sit here, I'm going to say here, I will never get old. And I know that is absolute BS. Uh, but one of the things that has you know amused me and worried me some is to see over time how my parents dealt with their own parents aging, and they were they were very much aware. And said, well, we're not going to do it like that. My father was not going to be stubborn like his mother had been stubborn. And and he was stubborn in certain ways. And I have said, well, I'm not going to be stubborn like he was. And yet, um, I think it might be in my genetic makeup. So, um,
1: you know, we will see in that. Does that worry you? How, did you see traits in your father especially that perhaps you recognize in yourself? But you saw them as as negative traits? Yes.
0: And you know, I don't say that with any, any joy on either side of the equation. You know, I hope that by being more aware of them than I think he might have been, or just being more aware of them without that contrast, that I will, you know, be able to make certain changes. I wrote an essay in the New York Times that was called Things I Will Do Differently When I'm Old. And it was based on this long list of, of things that I kept, of items that I kept uh, as I observed my parents over the last 10 years of their life saying, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be mean to the health aid when, when I'm suffering. Um, I'm not going to stop caring about how I look because, because I'm, I'm ill and I had many of these and some of them were humorous. Some of them were not at all humorous, uh, but it was a way in a way for me to use that whole experience to reach readers. And I was so surprised because, you know, sometimes when you're a writer, you know, you're doing your own thing, you're living your own life. So many people wrote into the times message board saying they had kept or were keeping their own lists. And so that list, but now it's become sort of this huge online list. I think there were 500 comments and I'm actually turning that into a book that um, has more of a humorous bent. Um, called stupid things I won't do when I get old future promises to myself my family and myself and uh so once once it's in black and white maybe I will just have to hold myself to them
1: well you're tempting me now I've got to ask you you maybe just give me one or two examples of the stupid things you won't do when you get older and we'll continue this conversation in just a moment hey
0: quick question for you are you someone who wants to be fit healthy and happy Well, one of the you know so you know one of the challenges with both of my parents was around mobility and how to make that shift to accept a cane and then a walker and then a chair, and my mother was a very fashionable person and she just thought those walkers were so ugly and um, and that they would ruin her outfits and. Um, <laughs> So, you know, so I am not going to use, you know, ugliness as, you know, as a as a reason to um, to avoid helping myself. And you might not know this, but when I when I started Googling how to decorate a walker, there are all kinds of of ways that you can. And there's there are these like it's called shrinkins, and I don't want to be a commercial for them, but there are these. Like these papers, you can adhere to your walker. It could be footballs and baseballs, or it could be zebra and leopard
1: skins. And now, I'm just going to interject here: this is in the United States, a walker. In the UK they are called Zimmer frames. I did not know that, and I'm sure other nations have other descriptions. But essentially, it's it's the device that you can with, with three sides that you can exactly. lean on and help you walk. And then the Swedes, you know, always
0: in always sort of tops and high design, are now. Producing really high style, what do we call them? Zimmer? Zimmer frames. Zimmer frames. So, um, or walkers. So, in any way, I am not going to let vanity get in the way of my mobility. That's um, good.
1: Yeah. And as you get older, do you, again, with the backdrop of the observations that you've made, are you more accepting of your own frailties and the inevitability of everything? No. <laughs> um, not yet no (laughs)
0: right okay not yet not yet (laughs) i think in my i think in my brain yes but as um you know and I don't know if you're this kind of journalist. And, you know, we live in our brains a lot and, and sometimes not enough in our, in our hearts or in our souls. And, you know, and there, you know, there I still have fantasies of youth, you know, in my mind. So I'm 61 now. You know, in my mind I'm still 38 um, or whatever, and I've just recently bumped it up from 34. Uh, <laughs> so I, I definitely have a good dose of, of, you know, illness denial and death denial. Although I will say, Peter, that a couple of years ago, I, I took this diagnostic online. It's called the Death Clock or deathclock.com, yeah. which I also wrote about. and it's a very rudimentary um, algorithm to determine when your actual day of death is. And I think you put in you put in your birthday, whether you're a smoker or not, a little bit about mood, and maybe one or two other things, gender. And then I was given like a death date that was um, when I was 72 years old. So that was about 14 or 15 years from where I had been. And that um, that actually did shift my my thinking a good bit. And I saw in the lists that I was keeping that I started to ask myself, okay, so I keep aggregating this list of things I'm not going to do. When is it time to start implementing them? And I haven't really come up with that answer, but I am I am sort of, grappling with that and i i recently moved and now i'm in a one level house i didn't really think about it when i was buying because i've been in a, in a two-story house but i thought i wonder if that was sort of you know part of part of the plan because it certainly is smart and um or smarter and should i ever be impaired you know i can just put a ramp up to that door and i'll have um
1: you know what we call in this country aging in place yeah so a little sensible forward planning there yes yeah and actually i phrase the question are you aware of your own frailties as you get older the whole sort of tenet of this podcast is that we don't specifically think about that we think in your mindset that we're actually going to go on for a long time we're going to stay as healthy as we can and we're going to maximize that health span and we're still going to be agile and involved and and leading youthful lives when we're 80 or 90 years old that is the that's the aspiration and that's certainly my mindset as well and you you might say there's a, maybe a small element of denial as well there but i i'm determined to to focus on the positive and not to think necessarily that we're going to be all frail and and infirm as, as we grow older well that's i think that's a very good point and part of the reason i'm i'm writing this book is
0: that we have these stereotypes of what it means to, to be older. And often they are divorced from the reality or from our own health. And so we kind of, we kind of think that um, we should act certain ways. We, you know. Um, I remember there was a study, I think it was a Japanese study. In Japan, when people get older, they don't really have hearing loss As we do, but our hearing loss is more in our mind than in our ears, if I remember that that story correctly or that study correctly. And so, um, you know, and and part of the book is, you know, we shouldn't dress certain ways because that's, you know, because, you know, that's age inappropriate. And, um, you know, we should just start acting like old people or what we think are old people. And I think, you know, our minds are what are going to keep us active and engaged and that we have the ability to control a lot of that. So I'm hoping to make readers more aware of the choices that we make as we live, that we can make better choices.
1: And do you have aspirations yourself about your own longevity? Is it something that you, you think about? I mean, you must think about it knowing what you do, but do you have goals in mind? I think that's a very interesting
0: question, and my answer is, is probably highly personal. When I was 26, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. That was at a time, that was 1984, when the chemotherapy agents were just starting to work and make this huge difference in, in longevity. And so I felt like I was forced to confront uh, disability, aging, um, and death at a fairly early age, and that has, that has stayed with me as part, of, as part of my unconscious or subconscious all of those years. And... Yeah So in, in that way, I actually feel that it's, it's sort of an undertext to my life, and that um, it's really the first time I'm talking about it, but that what comes as we age as we might become ill is really part of this whole thing we call life. And what, much of the reading I've done and much of the way this culture is in the U.S. Death is this other thing, and it's, it's become that. It wasn't, it wasn't that way in the Victorian era. You know, people died at home. Uh, it was kind of just, it was, it, it was regularized, it was normalized, and here people are in hospice or they're in hospitals, and we shun them, and it's this awful thing. I don't feel that way about it, and, um, and so it's not as though I'm you know, going to say I'm going to embrace that. But it does feel very much like that is just another, another stage of, of life. And, you know, we'll see. But, uh, you know, my levels of fear... Um, after once thinking I might die,
1: don't seem that high. That's that's very interesting, and I've had similar responses from people who have had a, to use the expression, a near-death situation in their lives, whether it's a disease or accidental or, or whatever it's been. It puts an entirely different perspective on on aging and approaching death.
0: It does, and then, and then I'll also shift gears a little bit and say that I see a, among my contemporaries, as they sort of get to 55, 60-ish, they're like, it's time to slow down. It's time to retire. You know, I've worked really hard, and now I'm going to go to Palm Springs, which is, which is, which is where, we where we are, are and yeah. which is where many retirees have come. I heard a fellow, um, David Rubenstein, who's um, one of the most wealthy men in the United States and on the board of the Kennedy Center, the John F. Kennedy Center for the Arts, and a number of other organizations talk about when he got into his sixties he decided it was time to speed up because there were so many things that he wanted to do and I have, so I have been very conscious you know, as I think that time is more finite to to accelerate and to make sure I'm experiencing and engaging as much as as much as I can and um, and not to slide in. Which is not to say that there's any one right approach, but that is definitely um, you know, how I think about it.
1: And of course, you and I are quite privileged in in that what we do, we can keep on doing probably for quite a long time. We are not going to work in an office. We're working essentially for ourselves, and clearly, we still want others and other organisations to want the services that we can provide, which in your case is, is writing. But it is something that you could you could do for other. 40 or 50 years if you're inclined to do that and your health encourages that. And from my perspective, that's something I want to do to stay and and feel very strongly that I want to do, and that is to stay involved. I think that... So so you're right, and that is the 40 or 50 years,
0: I'm not so sure, that would actually... um, That would take... 110. That that would take me to 110. And actually, what I really like about that is I think when I turned 60, I said to a friend... Oh well, I'm middle aged now, and she said, "No, honey, you're, you're, you're you know you're not middle aged. You can't double, you can't double that and still be alive." But um, but yes, but to be engaged in that way, and I actually find to get out of my own circles and my own age demographic, and one of the things that's been exciting about being here at TED is you know the real mix of of peoples and um, of uh, folks of of different ages, and so I think that being apart, being around different perspectives. You know, also, they just, they just keep your mind, they keep your mind active. And, um, you know.
1: and I would say important to go in both directions in terms of that uh, you know, different generations socializing together, working together. If you're 50 or 60 years old, certainly you need still to be working with the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds. But have active involvement with the 80-year-olds as well. Oh, absolutely.
0: And I, I, I have often or always had mentors who were... Um, 15, 20, um, 25 years older than me. And my great friend, Denise Kessler, lived to the age of 99. And when I met her, she was 77. And I was going to rent an apartment from her in San Francisco. And she was too busy to show it to me because she was a copy editor on the local newspaper. She was taking water aerobics. She was involved in political protests. And I was at 77. And it's, she stayed that way all the way through her 90s. And I just thought... This
1: is how you live. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, as a a writer, someone who tells stories about the aging process, what kind of response you get from people? Because sometimes I get the feeling that aging, just the use of the word aging, is perceived in a, a negative sense, that there's nothing that can be particularly good about aging and it's almost a switch off and you know in this digital world that we work in that maybe it isn't the word that you want in the headline to be googled such is the negative connotation attached to that word and i'm just wondering if you've sensed that through what you're doing
0: absolutely and really there's that there's a whole host of words that go along with aging old um, senior Silver fox, which mm. uh, for those of you listening, we're both yes. we're both silver foxes. Yeah. If you're yeah. looking, looking El- at our hair color, though,
1: elderly that, retirement, yeah, yeah, all these
0: trigger words, um, and I think that that is, I think that's part of the problem because um, we have this language. Language is reflective of values, and the way those words are often used are not, um, you know, in complementary ways. Uh, you know, they kind of describe these stereotypes that we have about people have a certain age, and that's another one of them, that uh, you know, they're impaired, they're ill, they're not fully engaged. And I don't really think that we've come up with a good vocabulary at this point. Um, and I think that's kind of important.
1: And the other thing that, that interests me, fascinates me increasingly, and I hate this expression of fake news, however it exists, and I think people know generally what it means. And it's something that affects this area as well, especially when we're looking at research that can help us grow old better whether it's science about dark versus light chocolate or how many cups of coffee we need to drink a day i think increasingly we can be easily confused by what we read and what we're being told about how to stay healthy is it something that that you notice and has concerned you well i you know as a health
0: and science writer I- for some time now, I have seen how studies contradict each other over time, you know, as we learn more and coffee is, is certainly, certainly one of them. And I'm not actually sure whether it's good, better and different for us today, having had two cups now, but it's, it's, it is challenging. Uh, it means that journalists such as ourselves need to stay current, but I think we also need to explain better to readers and listeners the nature of science you see these headlines for each major study and you know whether they're online or wherever and they're, they're huge and it's like this is the latest thing and i think that people who are who are reading this don't understand and we have not done a good enough job saying this is one study that is a stitch in a fabric of what we know and now we're zooming in on this, on this stitch, but that's not the whole story. And we, we need to see and we need to present the context better of where these studies fit. And I think we, we, we do fall short in that way. And I, don't mean, I don't mean you, I mean journalists um, in general. And that's I,
1: why I raise it, yeah. I, and, and I feel the same. I think we are, as a profession, falling short. And I think there is so much more that can be done. And it's up to individuals like yourself and myself to have a huge attention to, to detail, as you say, to stay very current. You
0: know, and to context, and I and I think, you know, what's happened here at Ted Med has been, you know, very positive in that way because we've had such such a global view of health and science and aging that you know has really broadened yet again how I how I look at the world. And I think it will I think it will help inform how I write in the future.
1: One issue that I've talked a lot about on this podcast with numerous guests is loneliness as we get older. This is a huge problem globally. Uh, There's even a a minister in the UK for loneliness looking at these issues. There isn't an equivalent character here in the the States. But as you get older, is it something that preys on your mind? Uh, Yes, it's a question that really speaks to
0: me and, and one of my fears. And shortly before I turned 60, I divorced my husband. And we had, been, we had been together and married for, for quite some time, and suddenly I was alone in, in that way. And my 60th birthday party was coming up, and I had, I had really two worries. What was I going to do on my birthday, which was the secondary worry? But you know who was I going to turn to, both when I was lonely, but also for help, when I was ill, so on and so forth. And when I wrote a piece about that in the Washington Post, it seemed to also strike a chord among readers, whether or not they're partnered, because there's kind of this existential loneliness, I think, that can, can come in that chapter of one's life. And, and then I would also add to that, being a gay man, many of us have children but many of us don't have children and you know and that's you know that's an issue and that's that's really a great fear you know who will you know who will we turn to in the ways that we had helped our parents and one of the trends that uh you know that i've seen and others have reported on is that many of the continuing care and assisted living homes are very homophobic and and um Older members of the LGBT community are forced to actually go back into the closet when they're at that stage of life because they will be shunned or they will be bullied. Which is a frightening thought that people are going through that. It's frightening and it's sad because, you know, this is the generation that's still ahead of me, but those were, that was the generation that were pioneers with Stonewall and did so much to kickstart the modern LGBTQ movement. And now they're at this part of the of the arc and they're facing many of the same challenges that they faced as, as young people, and we don't really talk about that. Many people don't know about that, and um,
1: it, it's a it's a big it's a big challenge for mm. me. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a hugely important issue. We are just about out of time. Would you generally say that you are an optimistic person? That you look to the future with uh, a level of excitement? I
0: am an optimistic person, and when I was doing that death clock. Um, algorithm optimism and pessimism were the, one of the choices you could make and i saw that my life expectancy was significantly shorter if i chose pessimistic so i worked to stay optimistic
1: optimistic is good this has been a, a really fun conversation thank you very much indeed thank you peter The good stuff thank you thank you and thank you for listening